You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. John chapter 1, our focus today will be on verses 6 through 18. I'll be reading verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but He came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own. And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him. Who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood. Nor of the will of flesh. Nor of the will of man. But of God. And the word became flesh. And dwelt among us. We have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Though the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, left to ourselves... We were darkness in opposition to you. But by your grace, you granted us new birth. And with that new birth, belief. And with that belief, the privilege of sonship. That we might know you, receive you. But tragically, Father, forgive us. Too often we are content to remain in our ignorance. Knowing you, but not desiring to know you more. To walk with you, to walk in the light. To be in fellowship with you, communion with you. Our faith grows weak. We no longer bear any witness to the light. There's still this love of darkness that remains with us. So we cry out to you, sanctify your people today. May the light shine, may eyes be open, may ears be attentive, may faith be kindled, may the satisfaction for sin be turned to distaste, repulsion. And may we go forward zealous to witness, knowing that through the witness of the Word become flesh. You intend that others believe and enjoy the fellowship of being a child of God. In the name of Christ we ask this. Amen. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Such simple language 
such unfathomable truths, humble words, infinite glories, and this is John's standard way of writing. But nowhere, perhaps unsurpassed, save in that first verse and verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we go from verses 1 through 5 to look at verses 6 through 18. We move from looking at the pre-existent Word who was at the beginning of creation, to the incarnate Word who became at the beginning of new creation. He who had no beginning now has one. As God, the Word was in the beginning. This man, he now has a beginning. John Murray writes, The incarnation means that he who never began to be in a specific identity as God the Son, began to be what he eternally was not. The Word who had no beginning became a man with the beginning, the second Adam. The beginning of new creation. And as we move from the eternal into time, the transition occurs and is introduced with a man named John. So you go from all this high language of the Word in verses 1 through 5 to this humble language of this man in verses 6 through 8. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word was with God. And then you read, there was a man sent from God. His name was John. Verse 8, He was not the light. There's a man. He was not the light. His name was John. Strikingly, unlike the other Gospels, John the Apostle never refers to this John as John the Baptist. All the other gospel writers identify him as John the Baptist to distinguish him from John the Apostle. The Apostle John doesn't do that because this is the only John he speaks of. He'll speak of himself in a, in a, in a manner, but not by name. This is the only John we see. John was a man, but... He was a sent man, and as a sent man, he came as a witness, verse 6. Witness is a key concept in John. The noun is used 14 times by John. In contrast to only four uses in all the other gospel writers combined. The noun form John uses 33 times. Whereas Matthew and Luke only use it once, and Mark, not at all. So this not light is sent to bear witness of the light. So in this gospel, John is not the Baptist, John is the witness. And what he's to witness to, as one sent by God the Father is to testify to God the Son. He's the light. And the purpose of the purpose is staggering. So he's he's sent for the purpose to bear witness. And the purpose of him bearing witness, verse 7, is that all might believe through him. John Piper comments on this saying, John's witness is a great necessity and it's a great not. It's a great necessity and it's a great not. He's to bear witness that through his witness, 
there would be faith. And John is not the light. It's a great necessity. It's a great not. God does not need John. God ordains to use John and his witness as an instrument. And it's because John is not the light and he testifies to that. John's Part of John's testimony is, I'm not the light. He is. So because John is not the light and testifies to the fact and to the fact that Jesus is the light, it's because he does so that he is a light. Jesus will say of John in chapter 5, he was a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Church, we are all of us. Every one of us, though redeemed, just men. We are not the light. But we are sent. Stunningly, Jesus says we're sent just as he was sent. Some of our Lord's last words to his disciples John 20, 21 Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now, we are not sent to be messiahs. We're not sent in the special position to be a forerunner, a herald of the king like John was. We're not sent by apostles. We don't have that authority. But there is this common thing. We are sent to testify to the light. And we can just as equally say, I am not the light. Much more believable than when we say it. You can do a better job of John in that regard. You're more believable when you say, I'm not the light. And you get the same honor though. You get to exceed John in this. This is the way you are greater than John. You get to bear witness to the light. Seeing the fullness of the revelation that's come. With his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and promise of returning. We are not the light, but we are sent to bear witness to the light. And as his commissioned people, the light himself says to us. You are are the light of the world. Matthew 5. As we testify to this light, like John, astonishingly, our God has the same promise for us. That as we would do so, there would be faith. Many would believe. Our God ordains that not the light be a light as we testify to the light. That thereby, darkness would be transformed into light. So as we look to this gospel that was written, John tells us, that we might believe. May our faith be kindled so that as we look at the Son of God, we would then be earnest to witness of Him, knowing that through that witness... It is what God has ordained to bring about faith, sight, understanding, knowledge of who the Word is. This light that John is witnessing to, verse 9, was coming into the world. So in verses 9 through 13, as we look at the light was coming into the world, Understand that what John is going to unfold for us in these next few verses, 9 through 13, is not how the light came into the world. It's not going to be his emphasis. And it's not the nature of the light who's come into the world or the purpose. It is the world and their reception of this light that comes into it. How does the world respond to the Word made flesh? How does this world of darkness react when light comes down and invades it? How does this world of darkness 
that already stands in futile opposition to the light, react. The light shines in the darkness, verse 5, and the darkness has not overcome it. And now that light is coming into the world. What will happen? But as John presents the words coming into the world, he wants to present the word to us in this way. He is the true light which gives light to everyone. Now, what does that mean? And what bearing does it have on the light coming into the world and the world's reaction to the light? That He is the true light which gives light to everyone. This could be a reference to what you see in verse 4. In Him was life, and life was the light of men. I argued that this is a reference to creation. That Jesus is not only the creator of men, He is the sustainer of men. The life that they have is a life by the Son. He upholds the world by the word of His power, Hebrews 1. So it could be referring to His sustaining creation. And what you're learning now is that Jesus comes to those who are sustained by Him. They don't recognize Him. That could be His point. Or less likely, though not altogether improbable. Many have suggested this is a reference to the kind of light and knowledge that's referred to in Romans 1. That's from creation. But who's sustaining and upholding that creation and making it to testify to this. This light that comes in creation of God. It's not a redemptive revelation, but it's a revelation that there is a God. And it comes, and Romans 1 tells us, men suppress that truth. So there could be a reference to that. Or, it may be speaking redemptively, of redemptive kind of light, but in this way. Not of an inner light. As though this kind of light of the gospel goes to every man. Not of an inner light going to each individual. But simply of objectively the light has come into the world and it is illuminating. It's shining on all without distinction. Making distinction. D.A. Carson writes, what is at stake rather is the objective revelation that light comes into the world with the incarnation of the Word, the invasion of the true light. It shines on every man and divides the race. I think that final option is the best one because of what John goes on to unpack. The Word, the light, was coming into the world. Okay, so how does the world respond to this? And what you see is that the light makes distinction. The light has come. It shines It makes this distinction. There are those who do not know. They do not receive. And there are those who receive and they believe. God's work of creation, we read in that God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. Genesis 1, 3, and 4. And so... In new creation, as the light comes into the world, it makes distinction. Light and not light. He was in the world, the very world He made, verse 10, and the world did not know Him. The Creator stoops to take on the garb of the creation, and the creation doesn't recognize her Maker. There is this astonishing wonder... The Word became flesh. And there is this astonishing wickedness. The world didn't know Him. He's not known, verse 11, even by His own people. The phrase you have, He came to His own, could be translated, He came home. He came home... And his own family, his own people didn't recognize him. Jesus will tell the woman at the, at the well, the Samaritan woman, salvation is from the Jews, John chapter 4. Salvation is from the Jews. 
Paul will speak of the Jews in Romans 9 saying, They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. He came into His own, and they don't recognize Him. He comes, and the Gentiles who were left in the outer darkness, they don't know Him. But more staggering, He comes to those whom He has given the covenant light of His redemption and His Word, and they don't know Him. The author has written Himself into the story, not as He has in the past with the narrator's voice breaking in. He's written Himself into the story as a character. And none of the characters recognize Him, not even those characters who have long heard the narrator's voice and promise. But, to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Verse 12. Belief in His name, belief in the revelation of the Word, who He is, what He'll do. Belief in His name, is met with God bestowing the right, the privilege, to claim God as Father. All who believe receive this right, but if, in general, when the light comes into the world, the world is ignorant, the world doesn't know Him, doesn't receive Him, not even His own, Why is it there are any who receive Him, who believe in His name? What distinguishes them? Is it that, in general, the light comes into the world and men distinguish themselves by the light? Most of them reject Him, but a few men distinguish themselves by their response to the light. Or is it that the light comes into the world and the light distinguishes men? John will shortly unpack something of why the world doesn't know or receive Christ in chapter 3. 3, 19 and 20, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest His works should be exposed. This is why we need a Savior, because our works are evil. And it says, everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light. You need Christ. You need to believe on Him. You need to receive Him so that you receive that grace of adoption. If you need that, because you do wicked things, Well, because you do wicked things, you hate the light, and you will never, on your own initiative, come to the light. That's the situation you find yourself in. So why do any believe? Those who believe receive the right to become children of God. But before any of that, they are born of God. So if you believe because of that belief... You receive this right to become children of God. But before that right, there is the new birth. You're born of God. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born. See, you can wrongfully connect. This is the language of adoption, the right to become children of God. And then you might associate that with being born. Again, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. But the order is, you're born, you believe, and upon the basis of the belief, not the birth, on the basis of the belief and being in union with Christ, you are then adopted as a son, receiving the right of sonship. And that that's the order John intends, it's clear in 1 John 5.1. Everyone who believes, present tense, that Jesus is the Christ 
has been born of God. If you believe, you have been born of God. You're born, you believe, and then because you believe, you receive the right to claim God as your father. Before belief, there is the new birth. The new birth births belief. And upon the basis of that belief, you're received as a child. This new birth is not of blood. It's not according to your heritage. It's not according to your lineage. It's not according to your parents. You will not be born again. Children, know this. You will not be born again because you're born to those who have been born again. You must be born again. You, not your mom and dad, you must be born again or you will not see the kingdom of heaven. It's not of blood. Jesus came to his own and his own didn't receive him. If anyone had blood, it was the Jews and it meant nothing in regard to recognizing and receiving Christ. Neither is it according to your own desires or intentions. It's not of the will of man or the will of the flesh. The new birth is, verse 13, of God. Jesus will tell Nicodemus, chapter 3, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He goes on to clarify the nature of how that new birth comes. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound thereof. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. As the wind blows where it wills, so too our Spirit, the Holy Spirit moves to cause the new birth. It is of God. And here's how John's fellow disciple Peter speaks of these things. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is of God. He causes it. So as light comes into this world, as light shines upon this world, even if it's through the witness of one testifying to the light. When you testify to the light, the light shines in that testimony. And as it does so, it makes distinction. And the Spirit blows where He wishes. And with some, He causes this new birth. And that new birth grants a new nature with new eyes and new ears and a new heart. And it hears and it believes. Because it believes. God bestows the right to claim Him as Father to those who believe in His Son. Men do not distinguish themselves by the light. The light distinguishes men. As you can take zero credit for your physical birth, you can take zero credit for your spiritual birth. It is of God. But how is it that this light comes into the world? Verses 14 through 18. And when we answer that question, you'll find the answer to this one as well. How is it that light comes into the world? And with that, what is it that we're to testify concerning the light? What do we say about the light? What is John's testimony? What is our testimony to be? If we understand something of His coming, we will understand something of what it means for us to witness concerning Him. How is it that this light comes into the world? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came by enfleshment. C.S. Lewis calls this the grand miracle or the central miracle of Christianity. John Murray says it is the great miracle of history. The crucifixion of our Lord is a marvel of grace. The incarnation of our Lord 
is a wonder of nature. One is a marvel of grace, the other is a wonder of nature. That our Lord, who has life in Himself, having been crucified and buried, would rise from the dead, is no wonder. Of course He's going to rise. He has life in Himself. He is the life. That makes sense. What's astonishing is that He would ever have flesh so that He could be crucified at all. How does that happen? The Word became flesh. Mark Jones writes, The incarnation is God's greatest wonder. One that no creature could ever have imagined. God Himself could not perform a more difficult and glorious work. It has justly been called the miracle of all miracles. And if you're not stunned by this, You've forgotten verse 1 already. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then alongside of that, John tells us the Word became flesh. Herman Bovink doesn't lose the connection. It is completely incomprehensible to us. How God can reveal Himself and to some extent make Himself known in created beings. Eternity in time. Immensity in space. Infinity in the finite. Immutability in change. Being in becoming. The all, as it were, in that which is nothing. This mystery cannot be comprehended. It can only be gratefully acknowledged. But mystery and self-contradiction are not synonymous. John Murray echoes this sentiment. He came by becoming man, by taking human nature into union with his divine person. The result that he was both God and man, God in uncurtailed Godhood, in the fullness of divine being and attributes, and man in the integrity of human nature with all its sinless infirmities and limitations. Uniting in one person infinitude and finitude. The uncreated and the created. This is the great mystery of history. To flesh out something of what it means for God to become flesh. God the Son to become flesh. John uses a peculiar metaphor that gets lost to us in most English translations. You have in the SV, He dwelt among us. The later part of verse 14 in the Amplified Bible reads this way. And the Word, Christ, became flesh, human, incarnate, and tabernacled, fixed His tent of flesh, lived a while among us. Now, let me remove all the parenthetical garb that the Amplified Bible always inserts in there to expound further, and you get the sense better. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He tabernacled among us. As the tabernacle was this house that both veiled and yet communicated the glory of God to the people of Israel. Even more so, the flesh of our Lord was a thin veil to communicate to us the glory of His divine person. Not only is glory, but the very glory that's communicated to us is one full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Just as in the old, this dwelling among them communicated not just the glory of God, but His grace, so too with the incarnation of our Lord. But for now, let's focus on glory and wait to unpack the grace until we get to verse 16. This is part of the marvel of the incarnation that by it, 
the deity of our Lord is not concealed, but communicated. It's not compromised, it's communicated. In the Trinity, we confess one God, one nature, God, or essence, in three persons. And then in our Christology, we confess one person with two natures. He has a human nature, and he has a divine nature. That's why we confess remaining what he was, God, he became what he was not, man. The incarnation is a marvel of addition, not subtraction. Jesus, in becoming truly man, did not cease to be truly God. His being God is not negated in any way by His becoming man. He is not less God for becoming man, neither is He less man for being God. And the marvel is that the human nature is meant to communicate to us the glory of His divine personhood. The glory that we behold in the incarnate Word is the glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Now the ESV, along with most other modern translations, will have own, don't have only begotten, they will have only Son. Or you might read one and only son. Or you might see explanations that say unique son, one of a kind son. In 1886, there was some scholarship that began to occur and it took dominance that argued that that's the sense. It means unique. The word here that you have doesn't mean only begotten. It means unique or one of a kind. And there would be some etymological arguments as to why that was. And one of the main textual arguments that was made was in Hebrews eleven seventeen, you read that Abraham has his same word, his only son, Isaac. But you know Isaac's not his only begotten son. There's Ishmael. So they'll say, that's what it means. It's Unique, one of a kind, not any other like it. But, as is often the case in 2017, Charlie Lee Irons put forward a devastating argument against this that showed the church had good reason for 1,800 years of confessing Jesus as the only begotten Son. He pulled out 145 examples from ancient Greek literature and showed that the dominant sense of this word that you have as only son, the dominant sense has the idea of only begotten, has the idea of being born. Only 12 instances have the alternative shade of meaning that means unique, one of a kind. And that all that dated modern scholarship really understands much more than this than they will let on, is made plain by they insert the word son. What Iron said is, you have to determine the sense of the word by its context. Sometimes it does mean unique or one of a kind. Other times it has the idea of being only begotten. You need to look at the context. And if they were consistent, they would have simply have translated the word, as you have in your ESV footnote, only one or unique one. Or even more strictly translated, if they wanted to be consistent, he is the unique. Or he is the only. But they insert son. Why do they do that? Because there's all this father language. Now, the point of that little escapade is twofold. One, you will encounter in solid, good, faithful men arguments for reading this as only son. Because that was just the dominant scholarship. It it means only. You'll read it in men like James White, D.A. Carson. If you got an old copy of 
Grudem systematic theology, you'll read a whole appendice arguing for this. If you've got a new one, he's seen what Charlie Lee Irons put out. And his newly published one revises it and makes an argument in the book itself, not in the appendix, for only begotten. Anyway, that to say, I want you to see that uh, that argument is now outdated, and even more so, it was predated by superior understanding. But, more importantly, related to our text, I want you to see that only begotten essentially, basically means the same thing as what's being communicated to us when we're told that Jesus is the Word. He is the exact image of His Father. Exact image. Jesus is the eternally spoken Word, and He is the eternally begotten Son. Man begets in his own image. So man begets man. Man had a beginning, he begets. His son has a beginning. God begets in his own image. God begets God. God has no beginning. What he begets as God has no beginning. He is the eternally begotten son. In the beginning, the word was. And the word was with God. Distinct. God word. God, Son, and the Word was God. John never refers to the Word as the Word again in this gospel because I think he means for you to understand when he says Son, you're meant to understand everything he's already unpacked for you in the Word. Word. The eternal generation The only begottenness of the Son is meant to communicate to you His divinity. And the glory, the stunning thing is that when our Lord takes on flesh, the glory that the incarnate Word communicates to you is the glory of the only begotten Son. The incarnation of our Lord does not compromise His divinity. It's a way of communicating To you, His divinity. More than the tabernacle veiled the glory, the Shekinah glory of God, and communicated to Israel the glory of God, the flesh of our Lord is a thin veil to communicate to men the glory of the only begotten of the Father. Hebrews 1, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers By the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. He's the Word. He's the communication of God. What's He communicating? Whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And then all of a sudden, the flow of John's argument seems to be interrupted with verse 15. We go back to John. We beheld His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16 seems to pick up, for from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. You see the flow there. What's verse 15 about? John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. If you've connected only begotten sonship with the Word, the Word who was, I think you can see what John's doing. Because remember, we're, we're seeing the answer to the question not only how did the Word come into this world, but what are we to testify of the Word? And John's testimony speaks to all of this right here. He who comes after me, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me. John is a man. He had a beginning. The word incarnate as man has a beginning. John came first, not only in his mission, John came first in his beginning. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Jesus has a kind of temporal beforeness, which means he has an aboveness. He's before John, and yet he's after John. 
He's a man. He's after John. But the one who is a man, before that, the word was. And thus, he ranks before John. He's above John. And what we see, now connecting this, is that the light then did not become less light for becoming flesh. As the sun is not dimmed in the least for an eclipse, so God the Son, His glory, the glory of His divine person, is not eclipsed, lessened in the least for His taking on flesh. Rather, His taking on flesh gives us a way to see the glory of God without dying. When when an eclipse happens, you can look at the sun in a way you can never look at the sun. Still, need some help, but you can do it easier. The incarnation of our Lord allows us to look at the sun and not die. Because of the incarnation, we may look to God the Son. And the glory that we see that's revealed there is grace and truth. Grace in such a way that for us there's grace upon grace upon grace. Verse 16. And an eternal, unceasing ocean of grace crashing wave after wave after wave upon our earthly shores. Or this could be translated grace in place of grace. And the idea would be that grace was previously communicated to Israel. And now that grace has come to its full expression in the Son. Grace upon grace. Either way, I think it is clear that the point in verse 17 is not an absolute contrast between law and grace, Moses and Christ. It's not an absolute contrast. It's a comparison of the lesser to the greater. It is not that the law is without grace, but that in Christ that grace is found. It's not that the law as a covenant is graceless, it's that Christ is graceful. All the grace that the law spoke to in promise, in shadow, in type is found in Christ. And it's not found anywhere else. And now everything that was there has come in its fullness in Christ. You go to the law without Christ, there is just condemnation. Nothing more. This grace is found nowhere else than Christ. So the Word became flesh. And because He did so, we behold glory. And the glory that we hold is that there's this glory of the only begotten Son, full of grace and truth. And that grace that's full in Him washes upon us. Grace upon grace upon grace. So that while the incarnation is truly the marvel of nature, J.I. Packer is right to insist Here is stated not the fact of the incarnation only, but also its meaning. The taking of manhood by the Son is set before us in a way which shows us how we should ever view it. Not simply as a marvel of nature. It is that. Not simply as a marvel of nature, but rather as a wonder of grace. It is the marvel of all marvels that the word that the Word became flesh. It is the wonder of all wonders. Why the Word became flesh. Why? So that heavenly waves of grace might crash on our earthly shores. Why? So that heavenly light might pierce our dark world. Why? To borrow a phrase from Lewis, modify it a bit. The Son of God became a man to make men to become sons of God. But to do so, the Son would not only need to be born like a man, He must die Like a man. For him. To cause this grace to crash upon us. He must be born. 
to live for our righteousness, and He must die to bear away our sins. The brilliant French mathematician Blaise Pascal said, The incarnation shows man the greatness of his wretchedness through the greatness of the remedy required. We are so sick that for our healing, not only must the Word take on flesh, that flesh must be torn. Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. For the temple to really be erected, it must be broken down. For our healing, for our entrance into this heavenly tabernacle, the curtain must be torn. And because it was torn, we can approach the throne of God as a throne of grace, as the throne of our Father, knowing that from the wounds of Christ flow for us grace upon grace upon grace. And when you see this grace, as it were, flowing from the wounds of Christ, when you see grace upon grace, realize that as you're looking at the only begotten Son, you're beholding in the Son the Father. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's right side, that would be His Son, He has made Him known. So Jesus can truly say at one point, no one has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father, John 6, 46. But then he can turn to Philip and he can tell him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father. Moses boldly asked. I think the sense of the text gives me the inclination to believe he begged. He pleaded. (coughs) Earnestly. It was a cry from his heart of hearts. Show me your glory. To which God replied, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious unto whom I will be gracious and will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Exodus thirty-three nineteen through 23. And then we're told that the glory that Moses saw came with the proclaiming of his name. Yahweh descended in the cloud. Descended, cloud, and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And now, what we've seen is it is as though that very word took on flesh so that we see the glory as of the only begotten Son, full of grace and truth. And if you've seen the Son, He's made known to you the Father. Oh, indeed, the incarnation of our Lord does not compromise the divinity of Christ. It's not to be confused with His divinity. His flesh is not. But yet, 
communicates to you the divine identity of the person, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh. Sinner, hear this witness. Jesus is the Christ. He's God's King, Son of David. He's a man. But, He's also God. It is the Word who became flesh, eternally begotten of the Father, so that grace upon grace might be yours. And if the Spirit, sinner, little one, if the Spirit is blowing right now, if the Spirit's blowing so you recognize the darkness that is yours and failing to see and know and recognize and receive and bow and love the Son as He is right now. If that conviction is there, then you're now surprisingly hating the darkness. And you're seeing something of the marvel of who Christ is. The very word that's been rejected and hated. That cannot be overcome by the darkness. Coming into the darkness. Taking on flesh. So that grace upon grace might be yours. If you, if you see that now. If you sense the spirits blowing. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And grace upon grace will wash over you. Cleanse you from your every sin. And the Father will hold out to you this right. To claim Him as your Father. Because you're in union with His Son. Saints. Let us testify. To this dark world. Of the light. Yeah. It's so dark. That not even His own recognize Him. In many pulpits, if Christ were preached, He would not be recognized. Not even His own recognize Him. But, through our testimony of the Word become flesh, He intends to make distinction. The Spirit will blow. A new birth will be granted. They will believe. Believing, they will know God as their Father. Let's pray. Holy Father, we look at this marvel, this wonder of nature, that your Son would take on flesh we bow in astonished worship. We cannot understand it. And yet by it we understand. We see. We know. And the reason we do is because. We know you're almighty. It's a wonder. But you're God almighty. That you could do that. Make sense in that way but why you would do it. You would do it to communicate to us a peculiar glory. The glory of your grace. There are no words and yet we need to grasp for them. You're worthy of praise. We need to not only grasp for them in praise, but as as, as a peculiar expression of praise, we need words to witness and testify. Father, grant us not just courage or boldness, but zeal, earnestness, a longing, a have to, to witness to the light. 
And as we do so, grant the new birth. With that birth, birth belief. And with that belief, gather all your children. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.